welcome to the Thinking Pilates podcast, where show after show, we bring you a different way to think about teaching Pilates. We make you dig deep, ask the tough questions, and keep unraveling the rich layers of teaching movement. I'm Chantel Lopez, founder of Skillful Teaching, an international education company just for Pilates and movement teachers, and author of Moving Beyond Technique. I am so gratefully joined in this delightful and crazy endeavor by my sometimes co-host and podcast co-founder, master teacher and mentor, Deborah Colway, as well as the brilliant and funny consummate explorer of movement and people, James Crater. Welcome to episode 42. I am really, really pleased, as you will hear me say later on, to be talking with Lead mentor for skillful teaching, Trinity Menti. Now, Trinity has been on the show before. She's also somebody who I work very closely with uh, in my business, skillful teaching. Trinity is also the owner of Innerscape Pilates in Nevada City, California. What's really, really, really thrilling about having Trinity on the show today is that we're going to be diving um, pretty deep into a topic that I'm sure we'll continue to talk about that we've talked about some in the past. It's a topic and a conversation that's been going on for me within Skillful Teaching and with my colleagues for some time now. It's a conversation that is happening, I think, for every teacher out there at every stage of their work. And it is self-practice or homework, home practice, getting our students to be motivated and dedicated to a practice outside of the studio, or rather outside of our guidance directly. Trinity has embarked on a very cool project to develop a self-practice studio model. Now she's done this through the master's program. Um, We just launched our inaugural year, myself and my colleague Ann Bishop from Body Brain Connect. And Trinity was a part of our first class. Now as a culmination for the course, which is a four-month intensive, Um, each teacher has to create a project. This was Trinity's project, and we're going to hear more about that. We're going to look at some of the specifics of that project and how it all facilitates self-practice for the student from the very first moment they walk into the studio. So without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with Trinity. It's also really cool because we've We've posted a question on Facebook, and you're going to hear some of the responses that we got, and um, I think it adds a lot of richness and a lot of depth to the conversation. So in any case, let's get started, and um, I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Thinking Pilates podcast. This is Chantel Lopez, and I am really, really, really deeply pleased to be joined by one of my favorite people in the whole world, Trinity Minty. How you doing, darling? Good. Thank you for having me, Chantel. Yeah, of course. Trinity, many of you know, um, is the lead mentor for Skillful Teaching, which is my educational company. And she and I have been working together for many years now. And we are talking today about self-practice. Sometimes we call it home practice. Um, we call it homework. Um, but we're, we're talking about we want to just start to, I think, bring this conversation more to the forefront and more into the public view in terms of our community because in skillful teaching through the mentoring program and um, through the master's program uh, with Ann Bishop, and also it's been interesting, all of these parallel conversations going on over the last 12 months or so 
um, in, a, in a more poignant, conscious way about practice. And we have had this conversation. Deborah and I have had it. We had it recently with Wendy LeBlanc Arbuckle. James and I have had it in many forms around practice as practitioners. So myself as a teacher, what my practice looks like and the value of that and, and defining that and how that, how that elevates us personally and professionally. What we are talking about today is getting our students to practice. And I wanted to um, get some, I wanted to hear what other people were were thinking about this. Like what, how do they hold self-practice for their students? Because we've been having all these other conversations um, in the background, what is everybody else, like how is everybody else holding this and, and what are they feeling about it? So we, I posted yesterday a question on Facebook and I didn't intentionally phrase it this way, but what's interesting is the question was, why should our students practice? And we have uh, had just a really awesome, awesome string of um, comments, a wonderful conversation going around. And what's interesting is there, we're talking about the why. I mean, we really are talking about the why. And when Trinity and I first decided to have this conversation, it wasn't really about the why. I mean, we've been talking about the why for so long that, that in a lot of ways it's, it's old hat. So we know our why we've been talking more about the how. And I think that as teachers, this is something that we are mostly challenged by is the how. When you say, Trinity, how do we get our students to actually do homework? Uh, yes, absolutely. It's, uh, we know it's there. It's an undercurrent and it's, we want that for our students and we know what the why is and how it can affect change for them if they do participate in, in their own self-practice. Um, but it's, but, uh, you can't, you, uh, you know, you can't really make somebody do it. You can't, uh, you know, create motivation for them or, uh, you know, inspiration. So how, how do we get them to, to do that? How do they, how, how do we get them to, um, you know, participate in that, take an active role in that, uh, in this thing that we know does such amazing, wonderful things for us across the board? Yes. The intention today is to explore this idea. Um, and we're going to take it from the why to the how. And we're going back to the why because I think, again, this is a this is a worthwhile conversation. Each of us as teachers has an idea about why practice is important. We have an idea about why it's practice uh, important for ourselves, and hopefully that is also reflected in why we think it's important for our students. I want to share some things um, from the conversation on Facebook, but I want to go back even further because I think the how really only can be explored if we understand the why. And let's go back even further than why should our students practice, but why do Pilates? Like what, what is Pilates and, and why do it? Because that, whatever your answer to that question is, is that is what informs the how. And I think that, um, what happens and what I have seen happening for a lot of us is that, or most of us, is that 
our the way that we practice, the way we've set up our business models, um, you know, the, the way we structure our studios, the way we structure our teaching is indicative of some interesting thing that we've kind of morphed into, which is that the teacher takes on most of the responsibility. The student comes in for uh, private sessions and maybe some classes, and we have gotten kind of stuck in this model without fully understanding if this model is actually in support of what we believe Pilates is and why we do Pilates, why it's important. So I think that there is um, kind of this unconscious misalignment for, for many of us around the why and the how, that our how, how we're doing it, how we're teaching, how we're trying to get people to do practice um, and, or to, to embrace practice is perhaps not entirely reflective of why we do Pilates and why we think it's important. So Trinity, I'm the reason, so let's go back to, to one other thing quickly, which is why am I talking to Trinity about this, this topic? Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason is because not only has she been a part of the conversation in a really deep and rich way for many years with me, um, but also she has taken on the project of figuring out how to develop very explicitly autonomy and self-efficacy in her students, and not just through the delivery of, of a specialized homework or um, customizing the delivery via, you know, audio sessions or video, uh, video support, but actually looking at how to create a, fundamentally a business model that reflects the, the priority of self-practice and autonomy for our students. So um, I'm really looking forward to getting your insight, Trinity, on, on all of this and, and how it started for you. But let's, let's begin with the question, why, why do we do Pilates? Like, what is Pilates? And so, Trinity, maybe you can just dive in there and, and like, what is, what's the, you know, what's the root of all of this for you when we talk about self-practice and the value of that within the method? Well, to to answer the question of what is Pilates, um, you know, on a, anybody who's practiced Pilates to a larger, a smaller, a large extent, like whether you're, you take classes or you've moved into being a teacher, you know, whatever that looks like for you, however you're involved in Pilates, you, you have a sense of what Pilates is. You um, looked at uh, what Joe's original intentions were and how he created the program, how he created, um, well, you know, why he created the program. So we have a, we have an idea of what Pilates is. You know, it's a method of movement, you know, kind of the, kind of in line with other things, other conversations we've had recently where it can be just kind of a canned answer, which is fine. Like we know what it is. And I mm-hmm. think that for those of us who are practitioners at whatever level, you you get to that place where it you are finding you're looking to what it is for you so um you know that it's mindful movement practice but what is it to you so i can tell you what pilates is to me and when i came across it what you know what that really meant to me and how it permeated into my life and it how i used it in the studio how i use it out of the studio um so I think the I think the what is up to each of us as individuals to 
mm, discover what it is for us. What is it? I think um, it is how do we interpret the how do we interpret the words? And so I think what you're saying is totally true. We each have to discover what it is. Somebody tells us what it is, and then we go, oh yeah. It, you know, it's a system of movement that focuses on whole body organization and health that's driven by, you know, a, he- a healthy breath and a balance of flexibility and strength through the spine and the joints. Like, okay, so fine, maybe that's what we think it is in terms of the what. And then as we... And it is. And it is that. Right. And it is that. But, and it's... Yeah. And it could be... I mean, you could define it in, in lots of different ways um, with lots of different language, I think. And still say, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the gist of what Pilates is. Um, it, but what's more important, I think, is when you infuse it with the why. And the why comes along, as you say, as we discover it for ourselves. And this yes. is interesting, just to frame it this way, like, as this question, are we discovering the work for ourselves? Are our students discovering the work for themselves or are we doing a little bit of that accidentally um, or on purpose but mostly we are telling them what it is we are showing them what it is and so that becomes a detracting factor in in the self-discovery process and maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of it uh, which I frequently do but I think the discovering process is the why. And then, yes. right, and then the why is what gives the what, the value. So That's exactly right. So, what's, so you, you said what it is. So why do you do it? Like from this perspective, um, as somebody who is deeply invested in creating autonomy in their students, um, someone who is, who is deeply invested in going back to the origins of, uh, and I'll just keep saying this, our interpretation of the work and, and what Joseph wanted it to be. What's the why for you? Well, for me, the why came when I first started to take Pilates because it was, uh, you know, for my my own why and my own experience with Pilates obviously informs how I move forward as a teacher um, but it comes back to, like in really simple terms, Pilates is a lifeline for me personally. That's how mm-hmm. I would describe it. And mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, the teacher who I very first worked with uh, in, you know, in at that time, I probably wouldn't have been able to articulate it this way, but she threw me this lifeline. And then it's up to me to decide what I want to do with it. Like, say, mm-hmm. I just wanted to stay in class for you know, just keep taking classes. But for me right away, I knew that, oh, I'm going to take classes. I'm going to learn this method. I'm going to put it in my body. And then I'm going to, you know, take the teacher training because I do want to move through the process of really understanding this work. And I think in really, in order for me to really understand the work, I have to be able to turn around and teach it to someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so my why is here's this great method and a system and um, way to explore, like you said, and, you know, way to discover how I can use this. So uh, not everybody is necessarily going to go take Pilates and then become a teacher. But for me, that is how I used it. So that's my why. And then I continue, that's still my why, continue to um, 
you know, a path to self-discovery by mm, offering those tools and potentially that same lifeline to the people that come, people who come to work with me. Mm. I think the term lifeline is really apropos and interesting. And I want, I, I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about that because you and I have been in personal conversations around the, the Pilates, the impact of, of discovering this, there's that damn word again, um, mm-hmm. you know, having something that you could do, like there was something different about this movement practice that affected you personally um, yes. is, is what I've heard you say. And mm-hmm. I'm going to read a couple of the comments from the Facebook thread uh, as we go along here, but that is a, that's a piece that came up a lot to the answer um, to this question. Why should our students practice is integration, right? Into life, um, you know, like making it, owning it, taking ownership, taking it outside of the studio, which also says to me, it's not necessarily about, um, take this 55 minute, 36 exercise practice and do it exactly like this every day at 8 a.m. Um, but it's more about, um, you know, how, how does it impact our lives and what's the value in that for us? And can we let that motivate us to uh, shape our practice in a way that's really deeply, um, you know, one of the most cliche words out there right now, authentic, but, but that's it, I think. So mm-hmm. can you say more about that? Like the lifeline part, not just from the teacher perspective, because I think that's, that's obviously powerful and relevant and a huge driver, but there's something, there's something else there, right? That, that was motivating you. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to, to just share my very personal experience with it. Um, I, I, I went to a class and started, I, I took it, did the intro package with, at that time, the only teacher who was in our County, uh, where I used to live and, uh, right away, just jumped into practice of three classes a week with her. And the ways that I found that it permeated through every aspect of my life were just, I just never would have imagined it would have happened that way. I had three, uh, you know, three small sons at home and I had been really doing that, doing, you know, staying at home and raising my kids and um, what I've described as sort of being neck deep in that. And Mm -hmm. this, this practice came where I could leave my home and three times a week go to this class. So that in of itself was this um, one hour, three times a week where I could practice control where I felt like, you know, that time and a lot for a lot of moms and parents in general can feel out of control. And Mm -hmm. so I could just go and have this, this time where I could practice some control. And then I noticed right away that, when I was home dealing with my children, that there were, there was this, without even trying, I could give myself a moment to do more responding and less reacting. Um, mm. And so that, that was big to me. And, and which obviously doesn't really have anything to do with the, with the exercises. Um, right. So it was like, oh, oh, here's this, here's this thing that I can uh, tools or a method that I can use that's not even necessarily about building a stronger body. It is, I mean, it's 
absolutely about building a stronger body, but it's not just that. It's right away, it just, like I said, it permeated into all aspects of my life. And, Mm. you know, just breathing for an hour, just um, taking that time to be with your own self. Um, So it really helped me to make the transition from being um, from my, from a huge portion of my focus, uh, you know, being my kids to like bringing myself back into the mix again. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. um, it's, it, you know, honestly, it changed my life. It's for, and it continues to change my life. It's, um, I'm just trying to think of a, like even a, a better analogy, but it really was just a lifeline for me. It was like, I had the teacher who was throwing me this lifeline, but then I was also ready to take a hold of this and ready to um, use it in all, in all sorts of ways. And what I found also about the practice itself was the things that were the absolute most challenging for me in the beginning, as far as just the movements are the ones that are, are my absolute favorite. So it offer now they're my absolute favorite. So it offered me this way to move through something that was really challenging and, mm. um, and then really, really embrace it and have that sense of progress, um, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I want for my students that sense of progress, but they have to take that. They got to take it. They got to grab a hold of the lifeline and, you know, figure out what that progress means for them. I can offer them all the tools in the world, but they, you know, they have to take it. So uh, that's my own personal experience with it. This, you know, and I'm guessing that, um, or I'm not guessing, I know that it's different for, (laughs) for everyone, you know, some people it's, um, you know, a rehabilitation thing. Some people it's, um, you know, achieving goals like running a marathon or achieving goals like getting out of pain or, um, you know, those types of things. I know it's different for everyone. Which I think is yeah, but I but the whole point in asking you is to uh, I think bring something uh, you know more to the surface, which is you know first of all I feel like we could take this just this little nugget and we can go in so many different directions um, with it, but it to me the why when we said when I said earlier the why informs the how and I feel like this is the, this is like there's this huge gap. For, for many of us, if not most of us, between the why and the how. Um, one, we're not clear about the why because we're thinking about it from the perspective of what instead of, instead of the, the discovery piece, right? The personal, intimate presence. Like, yes. how, like, why is it a lifeline? How is it affecting me? How is it shaping or reshaping my life? Um, and then we're practicing it in a way or we're, or we're encouraging our, ourselves and our students to practice in a way that is not in alignment with the why it might be in alignment with the what, but the, what doesn't have any meaning. It's hollow without the why is, is my perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of the things that I feel like are really relevant um, and powerful about what you said and what I really want to share with people who are listening is it is the method. And I have said this to many, many, many people over the years to me, I mean, Pilates is great. I love it, but it's just a vehicle. This is a thing, you know, it's like, it's like, um, meditation 
it, to me is, is a vehicle for mindfulness. Riding my motorcycle is a vehicle literally and figuratively for mindfulness, like for being present, right? For, for, um, for breathing deeply, for focusing, for feeling strong in my body, for feeling uh, like all these things that you said, like the feeling, the, the, the skill building, that the progress, right? The being able to reach further, go further, do more. Um, this is, this is the why, right? We define that the why for ourselves because like through, through the experience, like how does our experience of ourselves as human beings in our day-to-day interactions shift and change because we've decided to get in this vehicle and, you know, put some, some concerted effort into it. So Pilates becomes a vehicle for greater mindfulness when you said to respond rather than to react. I mean, God, that's, huge, right? That, but that's what mindfulness does to us. That's what mm-hmm. meditation does for us. That's what yoga can do for us. That's what Tai Chi can do for us. That's what, um, you know, writing or making music or taking a long walk can do for us. Like there are all of these vehicles, but I think to understand, um, the specific power of, of the what, which is Pilates and, and why we do it is the lifeline. And as you're describing it, you know, what, how is it really making our lives better? And when you and I were in our kind of pre-podcast discussions earlier, um, you know, it's like, there's so much to this conversation that it does become hard to articulate all the different layers and we'll either do a good job of that or, or we will not. But when we were talking earlier, it's like, okay, well, let's come back to these fundamental questions and, in a text message to you yesterday, you know, I was saying, here's, here's where I'd like to start. Um, and what is Pilates? You know, why do we practice? And for me right now in the moment, Pilates is freedom. You know, it's like that it's, it's freedom from, um, you know, a sedentary lifestyle. It's freedom from stress, It's freedom from the, an anxious mind. It's, it's freedom from, you know, a limited, uh, breath. It's, so it is this gaining and regaining and sustaining of vitality. And I, when I say that, I don't take that lightly. And I think it's not just my own personal experience that drives that definition, but it's also what I feel like is a reflection of, again, my interpretation of Joe's work. So if it's freedom, you know, it, uh, for me, so the question is, if this is true, why do I do it? What is it? It's, this is the reason and this is why, then I say, okay, if this is true, how am I teaching? How is my teaching? How is my facilitating? How is even how I define who I am in my role driven by my why and my what? You know, so um, I think it's critical. I think we're talking about self-practice. We're talking about, you know, ownership of the work for our students. But we need to understand these other things first. And so that's why I wanted to drive you back to that. I wanted to share something. Um, maybe I'll, I'll dig up some nuggets. But one thing, of course, James was the first one to respond. He knew we were going to be having this conversation. He was anticipating the question on Facebook. And, um, you know, it's not surprising that his answer is, you know, right in alignment with what we've been talking about. But he says, I think it's not only important, but paramount. It's not about practicing exercise, quote unquote, but about practicing how to fit more movement into your life. The more clients take ownership of their exercises, the sooner they begin to seek movement within their life. 
I'm really looking forward to listening. He says, yada, yada. So, um, you know, this idea of integration into one's life, uh, that it's not just about performing the exercises or even doing the exercises, you know, as a, I mean, there's value in that. Let, let there be no mistake that, you know, I'm not saying there is not great, great power and value in having a dedicated um, kind of more traditionally organized practice where we, we go to the studio or we lie down on the mat and we, we do the exercises in the order. Of course, there's value and we've had those conversations before. So I'm not saying that, but I am, I do want to get us to the place where we can understand the how we are going about it now is, is in my opinion, not successfully generating um, an ownership, right, for people. And I, and I think, Trinity, that that's, that's likely to be at the heart of why you're currently doing what you're doing, but I'll let you speak to that directly um, in a moment. There was, I wanted to share Wendy's comment. She says, yes, um, thank you all for continuing to build on this vital conversation. What if the question is, what is my practice and how is it growing me personally and professionally? Uh, as you're saying, it's very different to quote unquote, train your body or a client as though it doesn't know what it means. On the other hand, it's transformational being in a conversation with your body's wisdom as it honors and deepens our connection with the rhythms of nature and with one another cooperation rather than competition. And I think that's cooperation um, within ourselves, right? And that I think is also reflective of what you were talking about earlier, Trinity. So again, if these things are true, if um, at least for the people who have shared, this is why it's important. This is what Pilates is, um, you know, about then how, how are we going to go about it? Um, and so I think that perhaps the question to you, Trinity, is when, like, what was the moment for you? And I'm sure, you know, as all of the, like, the answer to this question always is it was like a, a huge accumulation of many, many moments. But when did it happen for you that you began to see that um, as a studio owner, because you, you eventually became a studio owner, that homework was not enough, right? That, that getting somebody to self-practice was a value, but it was also difficult. Like what can you, can you kind of frame for us um, the origins of what you're doing now? Um, I think that it, uh, you know, if there were a moment, um, it would be during my, uh, when I opened my first studio and created a created a funnel a program funnel and a model for the studio and um, actually you and I were having a conversation and I was asking you a question maybe about pricing and you said well it depends on how you want to teach and in that moment I didn't wholly understand I thought well what's that have to do with with um, pricing and so I created the model, I created the model, how I had seen it, uh, you know, in any of the studios that I had, that I had worked in or had experience with. And then a few months in, I thought, oh, now that question makes sense to me. So really, uh, you know, kind of us as individuals being the center of our own universe, that I realized <laughs> that's not how I wanted to teach. So that was a, 
that was a big moment for me. Um, and what were you I doing? Did, what, like, what, what so did what you I was, start? So what I did was I um, had a small space and I had, um, like I said, from, you know, based on what I had ever seen was equipment classes and equipment classes accommodate X amount of people and they're at a particular price point. And then we all do the thing where if you buy more, you, your price point, you know, the price goes down. And then I had a different type of class, which was mat and springboard work. It accommodated, accommodated more students and was at a lower price point. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few months in, and, and just to give just a tiny bit more information on that, I lived in a community where 95% of anybody who walks through my door had zero experience with Pilates. So what I was finding was people were walking in and saying, hey, I'd like to start Pilates. How do I get started? And I was explaining to them their options, and I'm watching their eyes glaze over. Like, and so immediately <laughs> I'm like, oh, too complicated. This, this, this is not, this not going to lend to anything. So uh, less than six months in, I just reformatted it, re, uh, restructured and I changed it to one type of class, and I integrated mat, springboard, and all of my equipment together into one class because, plain, like on a super simple level, I don't want to teach in this segregated way that um, can do a couple of things. First of all, it makes equipment unattainable to people for, um, be, you know, considering the cost. And it can definitely lend to a devaluing of the mat work. And, and I think that's, it's a shame, you know? So um, in any given class, I created one class and I call it a trio because I fit three people and I love to teach three people. I think it's a great number. Um, And I created a class that uh, depending on what I was teaching in any section of time and what the people needed who were walking through that door in any given moment, I had total freedom. There's that piece again. I had total freedom to pull out whatever and any of the tools I wanted to pull out to help them. And I wasn't limited by, oh, I could really put this person on the equipment and support them better or help them find a deeper connection, but they're not paying for equipment. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just put it all together. So in any given class, maybe it's 20 minutes of mat work and 10 minutes of standing work at the end and then 30 minutes of reformer. Maybe it's 20 minutes on the chair, 30 minutes of reformer. So I had just had total freedom to teach however I wanted to teach based on the people who were there and what my, what my current, you know, focus was. So that in of itself was maybe the very beginning for me of, um, really, really looking into, um, A, how do I want to teach? And, and, and then that was the very, just the very beginning of what, where am I taking, where am I taking my students? Where can I take them? What can I offer them so that they, you know, what tools can I give them so they can pick those tools up and use, use it themselves? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess that's, that's the beginning for me, the, mm-hmm. that moment, if there was one. Yeah. And then you began to explore the idea of creating self-practice more explicitly. Um, and, and now you're, now you've, you know, it's been several years and you've, you've come to this place where you are actually 
creating um, a very clear model for a studio that is solely driven to create self-practice for students. That's Um, exactly right. When did you begin to feel like that is something that you wanted to bring more to the forefront and, and let even drive how you teach? Because that's where you're Um, at now. So this idea is fundamentally driving not only how you teach, but what you say, how you do your intakes, how you interact with every Mm -hmm. student, what your website says, what your marketing says. It's the, it's the basis of the model for your studio. So like what's, why? So, so having it, having it begin with this idea of integrating the work all together, I think that's like a really deep underlying current, uh, current to being able to um, really find this focus of self-practice. And just like you're saying, how, how, how are we getting, I mean, you hear from teachers all the time, like I can, I can, you know, tell these people exactly what to do at home and they're, you know, they're not going to do it. It's, it's, I think it's across the board. Like how do we help our students tap into um, what it means for them to self-practice? So mm-hmm. what happened for me was um, this, it's, it's been there. It's been a piece f- from, from my teacher training. It's been something that's in the back of my mind, but the self-practice piece, but it's kind of a little bit shrugged off because, oh, you can't really make anybody self-practice. And then so when I, uh, when you and I had a discussion about the master's program and um, I was asking you, well, what's, what is that? What's, what do you do with it? What's it, you know, what's it going to do? And you gave me, you know, we just had this conversation on the phone. You gave me the rundown of what the, the, the master's program was, which is the science and psychology of teaching. I said, oh, you mean I could take this thing that's been a little tiny seed in my mind and then is, um, you know, that I've always held, you know, in my teaching, but really bring it to the forefront and create a funnel and a model that lead to self-practice. And you said, yep. And so that's (laughs) what I did. I went through the master's program and created a self-practice studio model. And Mm -hmm. Everything leads to that. The program funnel leads to it. My intake leads to it. My, the questions that I ask, the way that I teach, it's, I've really just allowed it to be the focus um, mm-hmm. and not, not something that, that is just maybe a side note, or if you want to self-practice, you could do this, or, um, you know, one of those things that's, we would like our students to self-practice, but they're, you know, they're just not, they're not going to, we can't make them. Um, mm-hmm. So I, so that's what I did. I took that and created a model where everything leads you towards, towards self-practice. And the way the model works is, um, so, you know, like, so you have your program funnel, someone comes in and they say, how do I want to take Pilates? How do I get started? And so you tell them how you get started, and then you tell them what their options are after that. The widest part of the funnel is self-practice, both in and out of the studio. So with this idea of integrating all of the work together, not separating the mat work from the, um, from the equipment work, but offering those as an integrate, you know, integrated within your class environment um, is, you know, maybe for a lot of people, it's like, well, 
how do we make it affordable? Well, how I plan on making it affordable is by offering people in-studio self-practice hours and letting them know that that's where I'm driving them. That's where me as a teacher, what I bring to the table, that's where I want them to go. So, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, immediately lots of questions start popping up. I'm guessing for people, how do you, how does that, how is that cost effective? How does that sustain your studio? How, um, what if a student never wants to self-practice? What if everybody starts to self-practice and you, and it's, and it's not, it's not going to sustain your studio in that way. Um, so I've basically addressed all, <laughs> addressed all of that in the creation of the model. So here we have, um, so a fundamental challenge, I think, in our, in our work as, as movement teachers is getting students to consciously um, decide to take the work with them, you know, to, to consciously begin to own it so that there is um, uh, autonomy and self-efficacy, these two words that we've been kind of throwing around. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, a lot of that happens automatically. It happens organically. Um, and, and we see our students uh, reaping great rewards from just being in the studio once or twice a week, two or three times a week. You know, they're sharing all of these beautiful stories with us about how they're getting in and out of their car differently, how they're not waking up with pain, how they're, you know, um, they notice they're aware of their posture when they're washing dishes or when they're grocery shopping or doing the laundry. So there, there is this automatic um, development that's happening for our students just organically because they're practicing, you know, really with any level of consistency, the body starts to, to see change and, and the person starts to experience that change. And so, um, that's amazing. And, and that's happening because we're, you know, I mean, for the most part, we're all just doing good work. And so there, mm-hmm. there's this, you know, these layers of ripples that are automatic. Um, but it's, but I think that there's just, there's a ceiling when to that, when we're not, we're not consciously deciding for ourselves, how are we going to, um, in our skillfulness as teachers, manifest more ownership for our students. And there are lots of different ways and levels we can do that. And so what you're talking about is creating, um, you know, something that's very, very, very specific. And also um, is like from the beginning, excuse me, as you said, in the first conversation to the end, um, it is what you're dry. It's like that's your priority is getting people to own the work and be able to practice on their own, whether it's in the studio or at home. And I just want to clarify that when I, we talk about the funnel, it's it's not it's interesting because it's we talk about the smallest opening, like going from the bottom up rather than like a like a, you know, like a regular funnel, which would come from the top down. So I think as students coming in at the bottom and filtering through, uh, you know, private sessions and group classes, and then, and then, but they keep moving from the bottom up and then they flourish and open up to the top where there's this wide open space, literally and figuratively, where they can, they're owning it and they're taking their practice into the, you know, into their life and into the world and they are moving away from us, right? So, developmentally, I think there's an interesting parallel. Uh, and this was talked about a little bit on the Facebook thread. Um, it, you know, it's like there is a there is a dependence of the student on the teacher in the beginning. 
um, for feedback, for insight, for teaching, right, for actually educating um, the body, the, the student, on, on how the movement, how the movement can work, how, how it can look. So there's a, there's a really strong guiding relationship. And um, developmentally, we talk about it in the master's program about how, you know, we use the, the conscious competence learning matrix and this, Wendy brought this up and Regan brought this up. Um, Regan Zubik is the owner of Village Pilates um, uh, in the Chicago area. Uh, and then we've, we've got this nice ongoing um, back and forth between me and Regan and Wendy here. But we're talking about, so developmentally, we need to, we go, we're unconscious incompetent, right? Then we're conscious incompetent. And then, and then conscious competence is a third stage. Uh, it's like where I'm aware that I'm doing this thing and I'm doing it on purpose, which is where many of our students, if not most of them, really end up uh, living and getting stuck. And then as Pilates teachers, we're fostering that stuckness because we're fixated. Um, and Wendy talks about it in the thread as being conscious uh, competence addicted, which I think is really funny and, and totally appropriate. Uh, but, but, but that is developmentally, it's like, it's a top down process. It's a learning. It's like, here are the exercises. Here's how you do them. Here's the organization of the body. Uh, perhaps here's the order of the exercises. Um, do this, do this, do this, do this, right? Do this, do this, do this, do this. Uh, but we get stuck in that and we get really rigid in that. And, and that's problematic. So the fourth stage where we're really trying to get people, if we want them to be autonomous, if we want them to have ownership and, and have the experience of self-efficacy in progress, unconscious competence is, is the fourth stage. And that is bottom-up processing in the brain. That's no longer a need to look at all the pieces as individual pieces and steps and go through them you know, um, bit by bit, which is slower. Uh, it's, it's more analytical. It also leaves more room for um, judgment, for hesitation. And it's dif more difficult to integrate when we're in the third phase of conscious competence, which is what Regan is talking about. It, that, that's, that's very uh, heavy. It's very sticky. It's very, um, it's, it's producing results. So that's awesome. And it's, we're already down the chain in terms of development, which is awesome. But the fourth stage is like, the, it's like, it's the pot of gold under the rainbow. And in order to get our students there, where they can really, they know it, they own it, they don't have to think about it so much. It does take a stepping away from the analytical uh, brain. So um, bottom up processing, and, and we talk all about this in the master's program, um, and so it's it's been really interesting to see how how this information and this work has influenced the the program for self practice in in your model Trinity. But bottom up is intuitive. It's faster. Um, it's more flowing. It's more organic. It's not analytical. Uh, it's more driven by uh, if we talk about it in terms of motor skill and and the physical manifestation. It's um, introspective. It's implicit. And it's also, it fosters, uh, um, coincidentally or not, um, the, the, the Pilates principles of flow and rhythm and precision and control and balance. Um, but it organically, intuitively, without thinking about it, just as a felt sense experience of the work. 
So to me, this is interesting because it goes back to uh, what is Pilates to us and why do we practice? Like what's the value in it and where are we trying to get our students? And if Pilates means freedom, if it means ownership, if it means autonomy, if it means the ability for the student, um, which we all are, to to independently at some point um, or in different ways uh, in their, you know, skill, be able to own it, just really do it and flourish in it, it does mean that we have to move away from, um, we have to set our students up for and eventually move away from this top-down developmental uh, early phase of, of teaching and learning, which is, you know, as an example of, of what this really looks like in a teaching scenario, uh, you have a student who's been practicing with you for six months and you get them on the reformer and you still tell them how to get on the reformer, how to align themselves on the carriage, how to place their feet on the foot bar, how to find neutral, how to take their first breath. You're still talking to them about how to push in and out. You're still talking about how to get their hands in the straps or feet in the straps. Um, and we, we're giving them kind of a, a barrage of cues and a barrage of like, do this, do that. And we're really not leaving room for what the, what the student's in innate experiences. And this is, to me, the problem. And I'm not fond of saying that, uh, like using that word, because I don't want to negatively frame it, but I really do see it as a problem if the truth is we're trying to get our students to this place that we've kind of defined and been talking about. With that, I, I want to share um, Regan's uh post, um, and then maybe I can do this coherently, some of the back and forth, um, and then we'll, we're going to look, we're going to come back around to Trinity. Um, Regan says, makes me think of the learning matrix. I've been trying not to hold my clients and myself hostage at the conscious competence phase or earlier phases, but provide space and encouragement to experience and revel in the unconscious competence phase. Perhaps we have to reconsider how we define competence so we're not demanding an unrealistic standard. I also think the efficacy and ultimate fulfillment of my practice comes from stretches of unconscious competence, and then in parentheses, and reflective competence. So reflective competence um, is uh, what some people put on as the fifth stage of competence, which means, um, or it's sometimes called, uh, I think, super competence, where we actually are taking the work, and you talked about this earlier, Trinity, we're taking the work and we're now filtering it through our own experience and we're teaching it to somebody else. So it's a, it's a questioning of kind of what's already become unconscious. And a continual return to the earlier phases through working with wise, open, curious, and inspiring teachers, their suggestions, and my own internal dialogue and light bulb moments. One coming from outside, uh, one coming from an outsider looking in, and the other a more organic, spontaneous occurrence that happens through consistent practice. Um, and then I responded um, a little bit about just that. Yes, we have to certainly we have to in in any endeavor, right? We're defining what the competencies are because it just depends on the skill that we're we're trying to acquire, and that there's value in that clarity. But also, as I said before, um, and maybe Trinity, you can speak to this as something you know that you I know that you have considered, which is 
when we get too caught up in, um, you know, what many of us are not even considering uh, to be the first three stages of competency building, but, but that is really what's happening is it's like building, building competence, right? Like building the layers brick by brick by brick by brick. It's brick A, it's B, it's B, it's C, it's D, you know, it's do this, do that, do this, do that. But that we can, um, particularly I think in Pilates because it becomes, uh, it can be so um, structured that it's, it, there, we can lose sight of the opportunity to see between the cracks and to and to just let, uh, as we, I think Wendy puts it, and and some others in this beautiful thread, um, you know, like really just tapping into the body's own wisdom, like being quiet, like turning off thinking, and um, you know, moving toward feeling. I think one of the teachers, uh, Sarah Degia, who's also from the Chicago area mentioned that, um, you know, getting her students um, to, to, to feel more, seeing, just, just moving away from this kind of addicted, uh, you know, perception of, of, of achieving competence and moving toward um, the, just the insight of experience. Let me read Wendy's, um, Wendy's additional comment here to bring this full circle. And she says, um, let's consider something that Regan said as a contextual beginning for exploring practice. Quote, I've been trying not to hold my clients and myself hostage at the conscious competence phase, unquote, end quote. Uh, And Wendy says, I am suggesting that in our Western culture, we are competence addicted. And we see this demonstrated as we enter our end of life phase where most people are death phobic rather than being with the loss of competence as a natural occurrence. So practice as we are discussing it is more than a physical exercise. It can open us up to life's unfolding and being with what we don't know that we don't know a discovery and remembering of who we were as children, open and curious about life and our relationship to ourselves one another and our environment. This has been the greatest gift I've learned in listening to my body. Now my body teaches me movements that it needs and Pilates has become a way of discovering what the movements are and how my body relates to them on a daily basis rather than one way to do it. So I think, um, you know, talking about the the stages of competency and um, to bring this back around to the developmentally um, we need structure in the beginning and we need consistency. So we need structure and consistency and we do that really well. And what I love about what you're doing, Trinity, is you're bringing these other ideas of motivation, um, you know, of intrinsic motivation, of tapping into the lifeline. And that's why I wanted to talk so much about that in the beginning, because I think that we misunderstand why people are challenged uh, by practicing and taking the work home. Um, and uh, somebody on the thread mentioned this, but it's like what, um, you know, looking at what our beliefs are as people and what, what our values, our personal values are as people, because those are the things that are going to drive our intrinsic motivation and what you've done in your model, Trinity, is you've taken these other components, these other really deeply critical components 
um, and you have created something um, replicable. You've also created something that has structure. So developmentally, it feeds into what we need in the beginning, but it also deliberately fosters what Wendy and Regan are talking about, which is, you know, slipping between the gaps and, and, and really honoring the moments. There are moments within a session. There are moments within a class. There are moments through um, uh, our practices. We progress over time where we really need to let go of the conscious competence and invite the unconscious competence, like see what's there and recognize what our, our natural organic wisdom is. So holy cow, that's like way too much of me talking. Um, <laughs> so sorry, everybody. So Trinity, within, within your model, like what, what do you feel like you are bringing to the table that's different, that addresses these other pieces that perhaps we have overlooked? Well, it, um, I, 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 be, I guess I began by redoing my intake form. And what I actually did was I took a lot of stuff out of it um, and made it really, really simple. And I took, um, I actually took the goals out of it. I took the intentions out of it, which were all something that were, uh, you know, the based on the intake that I based mine on, um, they were all part of it. And then when I started to create this project, I stripped it down to bare bones. I just want to know, uh, you know, who you are and what your other movement practices are and what you ask of your body on a daily basis. So, you know, some of us are sitting at a desk. Some of us are just super active, you know, and everything in between. So I stripped my intake model down to something that was really, really simple um, because I feel like that's a piece um, that, well, like, and this goes back to trying to let people know how they get started and, and describing this really complicated thing to them with a lot of different tiers and moving pieces and their eyes are glazing over. Um, mm. So what I did was I created, so from the intake, um, I'd stripped that down to something really basic. And then I created a separate um, assessment, if you will, that I use. So I don't hand it to the student to fill out. Um, but I use it through part of the process, which is a 10 session package. And the 10 session package is designed specifically to get you directly to self-practice within the studio in 10 sessions. Um, but during those 10 sessions, I am uh, using goal setting tools and understanding goals. So this all relates to what the person asks of their of their body on a daily basis. Um, and so it's goal setting and then I'm using techniques and this is all, you know, use the master's program to really create this. So these are all pieces of the master's program that I, that I use to address these things specifically. So then motiva yeah. motivational interviewing technique, like what, what really motivates, uh, motivates people. And actually in the past, I used to think that pain was a big motivator and mm -hmm. I'm learning now that it's not such a big motivator because there's something mm -hmm. that's deeper to that. There's something that's, mm -hmm. um, more at the heart of the matter. So if you're in pain, you're super grumpy and it's awful, right? Like we hate being in pain. Um, mm -hmm. but there's something in your life, some way that you 
offer yourself to the world that is inhibited because yes. you're in pain. So there's right. the motivator. There's the yes. true motivator and the, and the, um, what, what you could talk to your students about that, um, can like mean something to them. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, it's not a, uh, you know, yeah, self-practice is my overall goal, but I don't have, the same attachments to what their personal experiences are that they do, or I can't, I can't, I don't know what they are. I have to help them. I got to ask the right questions so that they can let me know what the, the deepest motivators are for them. Um, Mm -hmm. So, and I'm also using, you know, moving assessment. I want to see how the body moves, how people are organizing around movement. Um, so I've uh, just created this assessment for myself to use to really get a sense of where is this person? Um, what's important to them? How is this going to, how is this going to move, uh, you know, like permeate into their daily lives and their experience? Um, how are they going to self-practice? What, what can that potentially look like for them? Um, so it's kind of a, it's a relationship in the very beginning where the in these first 10 sessions, the student and I are really working together to figure out what their why is. And then mm. we, you know, are using the what to, um, we're using this, you know, just like you said in the beginning, it's, it's not, and I, and you know, whew, it's tricky to say this, right? Cause like everyone's hair is going to catch on fire or something, but it's not really <laughs> the Pilates. <laughs> um, like I'm by no means a, a Pilates purist, like whatever that may be. Um, I'm a, I'm a, you know, like you said, it's the freedom. It's what's your why? So why are we waiting? Why are we just like Regan said, why are we holding them hostage at this certain stage? Why Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. it, why is it an afterthought? Well, I think for me, it's not, it's not an afterthought. It is what's important to me as a teacher. And I want to move my students to that immediately, but I have to figure out what the why is for them and and how, and what that can potentially look like for them so that I can teach them the exercises, but really get a sense of how, what language I can use and how I can change my language. So it means something to them instead of, you know, you know, however you're going to cue the hundred or feet and straps mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. any of those things. And then just like you were speaking earlier about you know, you get someone ready to move and you're, you're giving them, you've given them like 17 cues before, <laughs> before they yeah. even started moving. And I think all of those things lend to that hostage situation that we end up totally. in. Totally. Mm-hmm. So and then we wonder, oh, it does. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of things I want to come back around to. Okay. Um, but, but I think that this is ultimately the problem is that we, we are holding our students hostage to this conscious competence level where we are over cueing and we're overly setting up and we, we put um, maybe on purpose or not so much weight on like the way it should look and the way it's done and like get all the pieces right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do this with your pelvis, do this with your shoulder girdle, do this with your breath. Um, and then, and then see if you can make it easier and flow with it. It's like, well, holy hell, how, you haven't actually taught me how to do that. You've taught me how to, you know, like conform to the exercise. And now I can preform, you know, perform the exercise really, really well. Um, and so it's like we're good at mimicking the vehicle, but, but what's the heart? What's the soul? What's the essence? 
because mm-hmm. the heart and soul and essence that is mine, Chantilles, um, I can't project that on, you know, t- to be of value to my student. I can only say, here's, here's the work um, and then provide opportunities for the student to discover for themselves what, what the value is for them. And I think so many of the people on the thread are talking about this. Um, and, and the problem is, is that we're not, we're not teaching them or giving them an opportunity to discover um, implicitly or explicitly what the, what the value is for them, what the intrinsic motivator, like you said, which I think is so right on, that many of us believe that pain is a motivator. And on the surface, yes, pain is motivating. It's like we want to get out of pain, but what's, the, what's more at the heart of it? You know, it, it's not just that we're in pain. It's that when I'm in pain, um, I miss out on being with my children. When I'm in pain, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't do the things that I love that make me, like, fill me up. I can't write. I can't dance. I can't, you know, swim. I can't, like, do all of these things. And this, why I wanted to talk to you today about this, you specifically, is because I think that one of the things that you've done is not only, you've done all, it's excruciating and hard work. So let's just put that out there for, for anybody who hasn't actually um, developed uh uh, it's it's a, a layers three layers is developing curriculum and a, and a formula essentially or a plan for the teacher, but also within that looking at how you're going to interact um, with the student um, and where you're going to take them. But then it's um it's a studio model too, so it is excruciating work. Um, it, but what's lovely about that so there's the work of organizing the content, the what, right, the material and how you're gonna mm-hmm. how you're gonna do it and what makes sense organically, but it's what makes sense according to getting people to unconscious competence, right? The fourth stage, um, the space, like the space between where we're, where it's like oozy and juicy and wonderful. And it's not, it's feeling, not thinking. What I think you have done, what you're doing is that you're, you are bridging this gap between the what and why and the how, and you are, like, it's just, it's so brilliant when you said, like, why wait? Why are we waiting mm-hmm. so long to, to say to our students, this is on you. This is on you. This is, you know, this is your life. This is your responsibility. And, of course, that's not how we're delivering it. What we do is we set a tone. And you said this, too, with our language, right? We invite them from the very first moment. We say, here's what I want you to do very clearly, just like this. You do it, you do it, you do it. And then you say, and now I want to invite you to describe to me what that experience is like. And people are ready for that. It's true at different times. Some people cannot go there in the beginning. But if we don't hold the intent um, purposefully from the beginning, that what we're trying to do is give our students the power uh, to to be able to sense and feel and recognize their own wisdom, then w- then we're waiting too long. If we don't do it from the very first interaction, in my opinion, we're waiting too long. And so back to finish a sentence I think I didn't finish before, which is what I love about what you're doing is you're taking these pieces um, that are so critical uh, and you are you are enfolding them into your your business model so you're talking about on your intake um uh you know 
taught looking at like, what do you, what, what, what does your life require of you? Like not necessarily putting it in terms of like, what are your goals? Because we've had this really fun and interesting discussion. And it's like most people don't, they come in and they say, Oh, my goal is to, you know, like strengthen my core and become more flexible. Like, right. That's the canned answer. That's the answer mm-hmm. we get from 75% of our clientele. It's like, well, what's that even mean to you? And and why is that important to you? It's like, your the program that you've created is really looking at like asking these open questions of your students in a way that's appropriate um, and within the scope of practice, so that you can begin to see like oh there's some what more is here. And you said this, and I want to I want to say it again because I think it's so critical. It's not so much that you the teacher are trying to come up with the answer because that's not that there's there's not ultimately there's no value in that but the value is can you ask these questions can you be in relationship with your student in a way that allows them to find their own answers and isn't that what we're talking about like isn't that because how are they going to get to inspired movement if which is self-practice like you know maybe inspired movement is that um unconscious competence piece where uh you know that's what i want for my students is you know, what's, how, how do all these pieces come together to get you to inspired movement um, versus I want you to do the exercise just right? Because that mm-hmm, doesn't, how do you mm-hmm. apply that to picking up your grandkids or climbing up on a yeah. counter and getting something out of the top cupboard or running a marathon or whatever it is that you do? That doesn't, there's, there's a gap. Like you said, this, I, my goal is to hopefully bridge this gap and integrate things because from way early in my teaching, right? Like you are way early in my experience with Pilates, actually. It's like, oh yes, take the body apart in pieces and have a look at mm-hmm. it. So you kind of see mm-hmm. what you're dealing with, but then for heaven's sakes, put it all back together. Like you don't, yeah. you don't stay there. You got, you have to integrate. And I think that integration moves across all, like all aspects of what we're even talking about here. Integration mm-hmm. is like, you know, it's a human, it's a human thing, whether we're talking about movement practice or not. So, yeah. Um, well, physical, physical integration, emotional integration, psychological integration, right? Like yeah. I think in inter interrelational intra relationship with ourselves and interrelational integration. Um, I really do think that all of these things uh, are, are, are uh, as you're saying like critical for getting to this place of ownership and there there are ways we can do it and i hope that the teachers that who you know those of you that are listening are are able to see that this is there is a way to do it there really is a way to honor the the i think to be in honor of really deeply the rich um history of pilates and what what I think of is the original intent and you'll have to define that for yourselves and and see what you think, but there is a way that we can start much sooner um, and much more explicitly in getting our students to move towards this piece where they, they don't need us. And I think um, Carrie Sadler said this uh, in the thread um, and she talked about her mentor saying, your goal as a teacher is to create autonomy. The ultimate success as a teacher in any discipline is when the student doesn't need you. And I mm-hmm. responded like, that's what I tell my teachers all the time. The goal yep. is to make yourself obsolete. 
And if you're not trying to make yourself obsolete from the very first day you set foot, you know, into a session with your students, then, then you, you, you do not perhaps have the right to wonder why your students are not doing their homework because we do, we do not yet, I think, have quite a handle on, or even we might have the idea, but we don't have the tools um, for, for doing this, right? For, for driving our students towards autonomy from the beginning. Um, we do get very caught in the, the competence. I just love this competence addicted. Um, <laughs> thanks, Wendy, for that. Um, <laughs> And, and, and we forget, uh, we forget to leave uh, space and create opportunities for our students to go, oh, this is my body and I can take responsibility and I can see that it is what it is in any given moment, um, hopefully without, you know, without unnecessary judgment. Um, and again, I think that what you are doing is so exciting and, and, and important for bridging this gap between an idea that we might all have, or, you know, we, we see that there's something not working. Our, our folks aren't doing their home practice. They're not signing up for in-studio self-practice. Um, and we, we're perplexed and we wonder why. And it's because even if we hold autonomy as a value in our teaching, we don't yet as a community of professionals, I think, have the tools to um, really enlist, right, to bring to our aid, to guide our students toward toward this freedom and, and toward making ourselves obsolete. So um, I really am excited about what you're, you, what you're doing. And there are, again, so many different ways that we could talk. I mean, we could just talk about this endlessly, um, endlessly. What I want to do, because we've been, we've been kind of at it for a, um, a little over an hour now, is I'm going to do something. Um, I'm going to do something. I'm going to, just post for a moment. We're going to see if this works um, on the Facebook thread and see if anybody wants to jump into this conversation with us for the last few minutes. So I'm going to, I'm going to put our recording on hold for just a second and see what we can come up with here. The other thing I was thinking about before our call is that um, the choose your own adventure piece, mm -hmm. because myself, I keep myself in a class. There's just not, there's just no, there's no, to me, there's not flexibility with that. I mean, not to sound rigid, but I have to, I, I want to be in a class. I love classes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about this really quickly. I don't think that one cancels the other out. No, no, no. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just dive into this. One of the comments uh, to the question I posted yesterday on the Thinking Pilates podcast page um, came from, uh, I'm not sure who she is, but the studio is uh, the core works. And um, she's talking about like how, how, yes, it's awesome, right? Self-practice, that's what we want. But, but the people come for classes. They need the accountability. She doesn't use that word, but I'm reading between the lines. And I know from my own experience, you know, the community, the camaraderie, um, that it is something that really motivates us to show up when we're showing up kind of in community with others. And I think you're right, Trinity. It, it doesn't, one does not negate the other. Um, one can foster the other, but, but we also have to be, uh, we, 
again, it goes back to like, you have to be clear about where are you getting people? It doesn't have to only be self-practice because for heaven's sakes, it's not, you know, it's like we can't just be left to our own devices all the time. We have to keep coming back. And many people talked about that in the thread. Wendy talked about it. Regan talked about it. Um, you know, coming back to the beginning and you, you, you orbit around. And I think Wendy said this beautifully, you orbit around and you have a new perspective, right? On the beginning work and you orbit around and you have a new perspective and you have a deeper understanding and it shifts and it grows. Of course, um, it's, it's a value. You just said how important it is for you. Like you've got to have a class, no question, right? Like that's, Bottom line, you've got to have, you've got to have that. Um, but that doesn't mean, so this is, it takes me to this other place of, okay, we need to redefine practice, right? Because I think for, and this is a conversation that comes up deeply um, in the 28-day course again and again and again, because it's foundationally based on establishing or reestablishing self-practice. What is practice? It's, you know, I think we become pretty rigid in what we expect of ourselves from a practice. And um, many of you who know me and have worked with me um, know that my, my self-practice is spontaneous. It's sporadic. It's often short. It's sometimes long and intense. It often includes a child or two. Um, it includes, you know, standing in front of the television while my family watches a movie. It includes drinking coffee and being in my pajamas. You know, it's like, so practice for me is the showing up. And if I'm showing up, you know, again and again and again, I'm on it. Like I'm, I feel good. Um, But I think that as teachers and especially as students, because our students don't have the same experience as we do uh, level wise, you know, like just time wise, um, over time, I mean, uh, they have a preconception about that practice is supposed to be, you know, I have a dedicated place and time and it's supposed to look exactly like this. Um, and then, and then when we fail to, to, you know, create that, we don't practice. So, so what do you hear from your practice? I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Uh, what do you hear from your students when they say, uh, like when, if you were to potentially ask them why they're not self-practicing, one of the main things I hear is, I'm afraid I'm not going to do it right. Yeah, and right. The, and the piece of, if it's not some kick ass, sweat, maybe shed a tear, then it wasn't really self-practice. And I think that what we're doing is we're making an unconscious agreement with ourselves that the universe is in is an either or universe. And I, I really think that does us a disservice as students and as teachers and maybe just as people because we don't live in this either or universe. We live in an and universe. There are mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is happening and that's happening and this other thing is happening. And it's, uh, you know, we, we make these agreements like if this is right, then that must be wrong. And if, mm-hmm. and you know, and it tends to go in extremes, right? Like you, if, if this is right, then, uh, or if this is wrong, then I'm going to wing off into this opposite, into this opposite extreme. And it just doesn't, it doesn't serve us. It basically like it, we're holding our own selves hostage in that oh, when we certainly. make that, you know, when we make that agreement. And it's, I think it can easily be an unconscious agreement that we've made with ourselves, that this is what, mm-hmm. that this is what's happening. So when you're speaking to, 
um, you know, the, the teacher from the core works who was saying, you know, my, te- my students want to be in class. Heck yeah. I want to be in class. I go to class every week diligently with a local teacher here where I live. Um, and so that's, that's a piece that I've absolutely addressed in my studio model and in my program funnel is that you do get to choose your own adventure. It's not that I, I don't want I to put that. anybody, I don't want to put anybody into a pigeonhole or a tight space, or it has to look just like this. Like that's, that's working against where I'm trying to get them, which is mm-hmm. this autonomy and self-efficacy and ownership of the work. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, say someone wants to, uh, say someone wants to self-practice in the studio for uh, an hour twice a week. They want a, an hour class once a week. They're gonna they're gonna squeeze in movement throughout their week. Like for me, it looks like uh, ten minutes about six or eight times a day. That's what I need. That currently, yeah, because it, yeah. it changes. That's what it looks like to mm-hmm. me. It's like eating. <gasps> Yay! Who is <laughs> it? Somebody. Santa. Hi, <laughs> Santa. Hi, Santa. <laughs> Yeah, I've been on a hiatus and I feel like instead of getting that, you know, down on myself, it's like I'm wanting to, uh, it's like um, flesh out the programming, you know, like um, Mm. in my body mind, just kind of get back to a zero place and also wanting to do something that is not potentially injurious to me that mm. really works intrinsically with the bio-intelligence and even developmental kinds of moves and really subtle, subtle working from the inside out, you know, and, and it's kind of where I started in the 70s with movement exploration. It was really about mind-body connection and I felt like the body held a truth and my mind could screw me up. And so just going back to more formless, something a little more mm-hmm. formless. Yeah, it makes me think I wanted to come back around just as we wrap up here to um, <clears throat> to a comment from uh, Anna Hartman. Uh, that is just what you're describing as your process sense um, is she says she's she's got this quote from um uh Roland Becker and it's uh, the quote is only the tissues know and you know uh, there have been lots of pieces and people who have kind of aimed their comments in this direction you know bio bio um uh intelligence and and the body's wisdom and and i think that it is and Anna talks more about this in her post about, you know, the ability to feel and getting stuck in thinking and the stuck in thinking prevents us often from feeling. And I feel like this is a beautiful reflection of what we've been talking about um, for the last hour and a half, Trinity, but also what you're sharing is your personal experience, Santa, you know, of, of the process that we go through. What's also very interesting to me is it reflects the conversation um, that Deborah and I had not too long ago about about the comparing mind and how we get very much in this like this is better for me or this is the best thing so I'm going to do that or this is the thing I should do um, so this is very analytical very processing 
way of approaching what the body needs. And I yeah. think, you know, the conversation from the outside from the outside in kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And all of the influences, right. The outside is so very many components, but, um, that, that there, this value and to go back to kind of bring it all together, um, you know, the value of understanding what Pilates is to us. Uh, and, and we can, you know, we can peel that back when we say, you know, what is movement to us? Like why move? Why, you know, why take care of the body? Like there are all of these, I think, powerful questions we can ask ourselves as teachers, but we can also prompt our students to ask of themselves that will get them closer to um, trusting their own experience and to being just being aware of uh, their own experience. And Sarah Degia, I think it's hard at this point to track all the wonderful comments, but yeah. um, she or someone said, you know, teaching the student how to listen, you know, that that's so powerful um, and how it's like at the end of the day, uh, you know, this is the missing piece, I think, for us as teachers is, again, that, that we don't necessarily have the tools or we don't know how to implement these, these different ways of driving our students toward um, self-discovery uh, because we can get very rigid and stuck in, like, the Pilates method. But what's so inspiring to me is that if you do go back and you read Joe's book, um, and you talk to the elders and you have conversations with people like um, Deborah Colway and, and Amy Taylor Alpers about the original intent of the work, you realize that there is this is part of the original intent and it's something that we have just, um, I want to say, practiced out of our practice. But in some way, I feel like that's kind of true, right? Over time, we've just moved away from um, this idea that it's body, mind, spirit. You know, it's like it's the soul, it's the heart, it's the intelligence, it's call it wisdom, call it biointelligence, call it soul, like whatever you're going to call it. But it's not enough to just talk about it. And it's not enough to just say body, mind, spirit. It, it really what we're talking about, if, again, we want to get our students toward um, to this place of uh, the teacher being obsolete, the student being able to take full ownership, that we do have to explicitly and consistently uh, you know, find, figure out for ourselves how to develop skills so that we can teach our students to listen and and get them to be curious. And, and that does look different, right, for every student, what motivates them. So it's not about necessarily being the best kind of cheerleader or coach you can be, but about, I think, and Trinity mentioned this before, um, you know, being able to ask the right questions of our students so the student can begin to ask the questions of themselves. Um, but I just thought that that was beautiful. I wanted to give credit to Anna, too, because this is Anna Hartman we're talking about um, of Rev yeah, um, I don't Movement. Know. Yeah, she's been on the podcast. She's a dear friend of mine. She's a Pilates teacher and athletic trainer. Um, Movement Rev is her business, and she's... Hmm. Um, out of Arizona and, and California, I think concurrently. Mm. In any case, I had mentioned that somebody on the thread said, was talking about the difference between feeling and thinking. And that was Anna. And then this quote, only the tissue knows. I just think this is a really beautiful way to kind of 
bring it all full circle. So this is not the end of this conversation. I think uh, given given the response on Facebook, um, it's just the beginning. And um, I'm going to be posing some follow-up questions um, to our community. What we would like to invite you to do is to uh, reach out to us. And you can connect with us on Facebook, um, Thinking Pilates Podcast. You can um, share your comments on the Scuffle Teaching website where the, where the podcast lives. It's likely that you found us there. We invite you to uh, share your thoughts with us, um, your challenges, uh, your successes around this issue, and to continue to be a part of this really, really, really critical conversation. So Trinity, thank you for spending so much time with me uh, in conversation around this this morning. It was really, oh, really well, awesome. My, yeah, it's it's really, it's been great to talk about this. It's been such a, um, you know, a big project, and it's nice to uh, just have the conversations about it. It helps me to continue to see it uh, more and more clearly. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. And thanks to everybody who commented online um, on Facebook and um, gave us the permission to share their thoughts with a larger audience. Looking forward to continuing the dialogue both on Facebook, um, on the blog post where you likely found this podcast. And if you're not on the blog and you have grabbed it via iTunes, um, don't hesitate to go to skillfulteaching.com and um, click on the podcast and blog and you'll find the link to this episode, which is episode 42. And um, there is a, there's a place at the bottom of the page where you can comment. So this is another way to engage with us and to stay a part of the conversation. We're going to keep our pro tips and um, hero super, super short and sweet. I'd like to share a resource with you for um, my hero for this episode, which is Twyla Tharp, a modern dance icon, and her book, The Creative Habit. Learn it and use it for life. Now, it's likely that I have used this as a hero before. We've been talking about it for a couple of years now. It was introduced to me um, through a teacher who's in our mentoring program, and um, uh, it's just beautiful. It's super soulful and artful and looks at the, um, the art, really, and the habit of, or really the ritual of, of creating a practice around the things that you endeavor to be as good at as you can possibly be. And um, I feel like it takes the both the micro and the macro view in terms of practice and creating um, time and space and a framework uh, that's really rich and um, linked kind of to uh, like your creative center, which I think so many of us as teachers um you know, that's important to us. And so I'd like to recommend this book. It's super awesome. Like, like all the books, um, that I fall in love with, I've got it almost every other page dog-eared and, um, pieces underlined. And I've taken some of the exercises that incorporated them into my workshops and my online education. So a lot of really juicy stuff in here. You'll find a link to the book, um, in the show notes. So check that out. Our pro tip for the episode, something that Trinity and I work with uh, on a regular basis with the teachers um, who are both in uh, the mentoring program, but also who are involved in the 28-day fulfilled and successful um, Pilates teacher online course. And we've got one coming up in August, starts August 27th. You can learn more about that in the show notes 
or at skillfulteaching.com. But we, the foundation of that course, and really the foundation of the mentoring program, is helping teachers establish a, a powerful and realistic self-practice so that we are always connected to our own experience um, and questioning from that place. And one of the tools that we use is um, research-driven, and um, the language that we use is, uh, we call it an anchor. And um, essentially, this is a way that you can create a, a more steadfast practice, but it's also something, um, a tool that you can share with your students. And essentially, all an anchor is, is when you are trying to establish a new habit, is that you anchor the new habit into something that you already do on a regular basis. So um, good examples would be taking the dog for a walk, um, waking up, um, making coffee, brushing your teeth, um, um, trying to think of other things that you might do every single day, you know, attaching it to something specific in your morning routine or your afternoon or evening routine works really well. Over time, it just becomes a part of what you do because you anchor it into something that is already uh, already there. And this just really takes the pressure off. It makes it easy. It leaves out the questioning of figuring out when and how and where. You just choose something that's super, super consistent in your life, and you anchor the new habit into that or onto it. So for your students, um, this is something that you can talk to them about and share with them if you're, if you're wanting them to you know, incorporate a stretch or roll their feet or do an exercise um, daily, they can anchor it into something that they already do. Keeping it simple, keeping the time um, really small, so starting small is also important, but, but really the crux of this is, is the anchor. So I encourage you to play with it for yourself and see what your experience is and see how it works for you. Uh, with anything like this, it's likely to um, take a little uh, fixing and fussing. And so, you know, just hang with it and adjust if you need to. The other, the other tip I would give you is to not try to anchor into too much. So um, if you you know, want to give your students several exercises to do, and you're talking about the anchor, um, it can be really difficult to squeeze in too much on top of something they already do, because you have to realize, and I'm sure what you'll experience is that you already have a flow that you're in with these habits. And so breaking them up um, in a small way is really, really easy and uh, to do and digestible. But if we're talking about trying to, to, to put in um, a large practice that can be a little trickier. So start small, create anchors, and um, check out Twyla Tharp's book, The Creative Habit. So that's it for us for now, and um, really, really look forward to hearing from you guys on this topic of self-practice and to continuing the conversation with with James and with Deborah and um, with many of you both in the podcast and online. You can reach us at thinkingpilatespodcast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and look forward to the next time. Until then, breathe deep and teach well. All the things that make you sing and tap your little toes.